Well, Ephesians 5.21, and this is one of those verses that I think you can memorize. It's a, lot of, it's a verse a lot of people don't want in the Bible, but it's here. <laughs> Very simple. Simple to read. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's it. Can we all say it? Submitting to one another in the fear of God. A tiny little verse that has a great, great impact and a lot to say to us. You know, first of all, I just would really like to straighten out the word fear because unfortunately, the old King James back in the 1600 translated it that way. But words change in time, right? And, and so the understanding of them, it would be a sense of respect and honor. Fear the king or honor the king. And, and so today we would not translate that as fear. We would translate that word out of a great heart of respect, out of a great need to honor God, let's submit to one another. Now, in contrast, he is saying that the depth of your motivation of submission is not out of honoring man. Although the Bible does tell us to have a submission to authorities out of honoring man, not so here. He's saying here that our motivation needs to go much, much deeper, right to the very root of our obedience. And that is God. God has put things in authority, right? We're going to be studying in the next couple of weeks that in the home, the husband's the head of the home. Second, the wife. Third, the children. Now, that does not mean that one person is superior. When the police officer's lights kick on on the car, and we always pull over, right? We pretty regularly now see the idiots who think they can get away. Three hours later, they run out of gas or they eventually get arrested, right? <laughs> we, we pull over. Now, it's not because the police officer is a better American. He's a greater American, or he's a greater human being, or he's a smarter human being, or he's an elite American or elite human being. He's an American like you and I, right? I could be at a baseball game sitting next to a police officer and not even know it. He's just a regular American. But yet, when he is operating in a place of authority in the black and white car with the lights that go off, all of a sudden, we place ourselves under this authority. This is the second most important part here. The motivation is to honor God because people often are idiots. People we're often called to submit to are very stupid. People that we are called to be under authority are not as smart as we are. I, I, I know this is often a difficult thing when people go into the military. They, they find out very quickly that some of the people that can raise up in ranks are real doofs. And you get some guy who's really a warrior, but yet his boss is, you know, Barney Fife, if you're old enough to remember that. And so it's not really the person, but it's yet the authority that they stand in that we need to recognize. And God has either done it or allowed it. But either way, the challenge is to us to have the right heart. And so this doesn't say somebody is going to make you submit. No, 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 no. 
Here in the Greek, it's very, very clear. You must place yourself under that authority. It's not the authority smacking you and say, get down under me where you're supposed to be. Not so. Matter of fact, we're going to see next week when it says, wives, submit to your husbands. It's as if God is saying, men, put your hand over your ears. You're not to hear this. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord and everything. Never does God say, husbands, let your wife know she's supposed to submit to you. Let her know she's not obeying God's word by not being submissive to you. No, that is so demonic. It's so opposite of the nature of God and what he is saying here. We've been talking here in this chapter about being filled with the Holy Spirit and the need to continually be filled with the Spirit. When a person's filled with the Spirit to the world, they become a witness they never thought they could be. They become effective in a world they never thought they could be effective. In the church, it's our hearts richly with the word of God and worship. And we open our mouths and speak what God has been speaking to our hearts. And everybody else is filled with the spirit through the wonderful words that we speak. And you say, wow, the Lord really spoke to you. And it's like, it didn't seem that profound until I shared it with you. (laughs) And it was profound. So when we're filled with the Spirit, we're filling the world with the gospel. We're being an evangelist. And I'm not an evangelist, but I'm doing the work of an evangelist. Where did that come from? And in the church, we get here early to pray with one another, share with one another, talk with one another. And then afterwards, we're not here just to, you know, like in a movie theater, to watch what's happening on the screen or on the stage. No, we're all participants. We're all on the football field here. Everybody's playing in the game. Who are those in the stands? The angels. Those who have died in Christ, the great cloud of witnesses, they're all watching the game. We're not in the stands watching the game. The band, they're in the game. The pastor, he's in the game. We're just participants, no. Or we're just observers, no. We're all participants. So when the service is over, we're filled with the Spirit, washing one another in the Word, exhorting one another in the things God has shared to us. Now, what is the Spirit of such a place? A great meekness a great gentleness. We're going to see next week in Peter, he said it's a precious spirit of a gentle and quiet spirit that's precious in the sight of God. There's a great love amongst us. The Holy Spirit shed abroad in our hearts. Romans 5 says, when the Holy Spirit shed abroad, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. But then there's also a great meekness to one another. A great sense of need to wash one another's feet and serve one another. A great humility that's amongst us because where the Spirit of the Lord is, He brings that Spirit of Christ. And that Spirit of Christ is that of a submitted Spirit. Really, when we think about it, You can see, starting in the book of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, several threads. One of the threads there is clearly submission versus self-will. And you know it even goes before Genesis, into the heavenlies, where we see Christ, the second person of the Trinity, fully submitted to the first person of the Trinity, the Father. And we see the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, fully submitted to the Son and to the Father. Even with God in His nature being one God, but yet three persons, 
within that, before any angels were in existence, before any men were made, in the very nature of God was his nature of submission. It's not something that revealed itself once there was somebody around to submit to. No. Jesus loves the Father. Jesus rejoices to be in submission to the Father. And so when angels were made, they're observing this gentle and quiet spirit. When the angels were made, they're observing God who's not lording it over everything. And he's got this boisterous spirit demanding and commanding and quite the opposite. Even God in his wonderful, powerful nature was still meek. And this is what gave Lucifer the idea and, in his mind, the opportunity. In his self-will, out of his own prideful heart, he created this self-will. And he says, well, looking at God, I, I don't see why everybody's got to see him as the top dog. I, I don't get it. He, he doesn't really put the glitter with it, you know. He doesn't really put the, you know, the G in God. <laughs> he really doesn't, you know. Boy, if I were lifted up, if I were God, man, you would see some beauty there. You would see some power there. You'd see, see some shazam there. And so Satan, out of his own heart, a created creature, out of his own self-will, comparing himself to this meek and gentle creature, God Almighty. In Isaiah 14, you guys probably know that well. In verse 12 through 15, but looking at verse 13, I will ascend into heaven, Lucifer says, who is Satan, Beelzebub, the devil. I will exalt my throne above the stars, angels of God. I also will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Now, there, there's this humility. I didn't say I'd be above God. I just said I'd be equal to God. <laughs> oh, Satan, you're so, you're so humble. Self-will. It's demonic. We need to get that. You have submission, which is the characteristics of godliness. And you have self-willed individual who are following evil, the devil. The devil's attributes that he created out of his own foolish, sinful heart. Boy, when we look at Jesus, what a perfect example for us he is. It would take a hundred studies to look at all the verses in the Bible on this. But you remember when Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who's art in heaven. He's our dad. Yeah, I want you to, when you pray, have intimacy. I love it in the Hebrew, it's Abba. I was with some friends in Connecticut one time and they, they were living in a Jewish community and there was a little girl over and, oh, your dad's on the phone and she starts speaking Hebrew. Oh, Abba, Abba, Abba. Okay, okay, Abba. You know, she's speaking Hebrew, Abba, Abba. And I, we were all, me and the kids and Cheryl, we were all just transfixed like. And she got off the phone and my friend said, sounds like prayer, huh? It's, it's, it's awesome when you hear it in Hebrew, somebody talking to their dad saying, Father, yes, Father, yes, Father. I want, you to, I want you to see God as your daddy. But he's in heaven. <laughs> he's not on earth. He's not man that we should can compare him. God is in heaven. You are on earth. Let your words be few or reverent. 
So as we say, Abba, Father, say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Look at this. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's not about my kingdom. It's not about my will. My will is so strong. I want my will so bad. Do you guys want your will really bad? I want my will so bad. Gosh, I want my will. And you know, if you say it quick enough, you can't really tell. Thy will be done, my will be done, thy will be done, my will be done. It sounds almost the same. It's in the heart. That's the big difference, isn't it? Jesus speaking in John 6, 38. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Powerful. John 5, 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 12, 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me command of what I should say. I like one of the the modern translations. It says, and how I should say it. What I should say and what I should speak, or what I should speak and how I should speak it. In John 14, 10. Do not, do you not, do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the work. And of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know that incredible prayer where Jesus wants his own will and he's realizing what's happening. His blood begins to come out at pores of his sweat. And yet three times, begging the Father for the cup to pass, he says, but not my will, thy will be done. No matter how deeply I want my will, it's always in submission to your will first. There's no better way to explain this submissive heart of Jesus than in Philippians 2. I've sort of rearranged the verses to give us a different look at it. But we start there in Philippians 2, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now listen to verse 5. I'm skipping down to verse 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God. He was God. For Jesus to say, I'm God, all authority had been given unto him. But he made himself of no reputation. Let's just stop there a minute. He made himself of no reputation. That's one thing you learn in high school. Once you beat one guy up, especially the big bully, you you want everybody to know it. That way you don't have to fight anymore. (laughs) That way no one will pick on you anymore. Once you get a powerful reputation, people just assume. It was years ago, I was 24 years old when I started Calvary Chapel San Diego. And I, I just got no respect. I mean, everybody was challenging. Of course, when I was 24, I looked 16. Might have something to do with it. And, and a guy jokingly said, well, I hear you're getting on the radio. And I said, yeah, it's, the Lord's opening that door. He goes, once you're on the radio, nobody will question you again. And I'm like, what? Sure enough, I got on the radio and everybody assumes I must be right because I'm on the radio. Hey, I'm on the radio every Saturday at one. <laughs> he made himself of no reputation, but form, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, listen to this verse 8, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. So now going back to verse 3 and 4 of Philippians 2, so let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, humility, a submittedness of mind. Let each esteem others as better than himself. That's every human being on the planet. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now verse 6 through 11. 
And being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of men. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is why God the Father has highly exalted him. This is why God the Father has highly exalted Jesus, his son and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because Jesus submitted himself like no one ever submitted themselves. You know... Going out on Thursdays and witnessing has been very interesting because you really do get to hear what's in the heart of men. And one thing surprisingly that I've discovered, especially talking to Muslims and to Jews, is they are flabbergasted that we believe in Jesus who's such a loser. Let's think about it a minute. We're just looking at the world through human eyes. Jesus' story is a story of a loser, not a winner. Right from the beginning, it tells us in Isaiah 53 too, he was ugly. Let me tell you something, living so close to Hollywood and living here on the beach, one thing you don't want to be is ugly. I've learned in the O.C., can't be too rich and you can't be too skinny. Those are two things you can't be enough. You can get richer and you can get skinnier. But Jesus, right from the get-go, had it hard. He was ugly. Number two, his whole life was nothing but hardship. Growing up in Nazareth, a poor, degenerate place, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But look at his, his life, his whole life. It's described in Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid as we, we all, everybody who knew about Jesus and his story, we hid our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem this ugly nobody poor carpenter from Nazareth. He was poor. Luke 9, 58, Jesus tells the guy, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm poor. And then he died like a criminal with other criminals. Matter of fact, in Luke 23, 32, it says, and there were two other, two other criminals. In the physical realm, Jesus did not look like the success story. Well, he got out of Nazareth and, and he lied about his identity and he got his technology degree and, and uh, then he started his own technological firm and then he became a billionaire and everybody knew who he was and he had the biggest yacht in Israel and, and, uh, and he had the castle that he built and, and he was rich and famous and everybody knows who he is and that's not his story, is it? <laughs> Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Not blessed are those who become great. Blessed are those who just don't care about anybody and you just fight your way to the top and you get rich and successful. Blessed are the aggressive ones who take life by the horns like a bull and make life happen for yourself. I'm not saying there's not glory in those human stories, they are. But how many rich and famous people in the last five years have we heard that have killed themselves? Robin Williams, that shocked me. Beloved worldwide, they love this guy. Rich. House right on the beach in Malibu, one of his houses. 
famous, loved, rich, but yet he couldn't stand being alive. The pain of living was so great. Success stories doesn't mean you're successful, even though in the eyes of men, you're successful. But we who see things spiritually, we see Jesus in his gentleness and we say he was great. We see Jesus in his submittedness and we say he was great. We see Jesus washing feet and helping the poor and touching lepers and forgiving women caught in the act of adultery. And we say, he's our hero. In the eyes of the world, he looks like a loser, but to those who can see things spiritually, read with me a few verses in Isaiah 53, verse four through eight. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. On a human level, he looked like a guy that God had cursed. On the spiritual level, we realize all his hardship, all of his testings, all of his difficulty was to bear our sorrows and our griefs and to be able to be an intercessor that had full of, would be full of sympathy for us. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the crucifixion for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Stop there a minute. Do you remember in the garden, Peter whips out his sword? <laughs> and what did Jesus say? I could call every angel out of heaven right now. The greatness of Jesus was that he had the power to stop the pain. He had the ability. All authority had been given to him before he went to the cross. There in John 13, when he washed the apostles' feet, he says, now the Father has given all authority unto me. And with all that power and authority, what did he do? He washed their feet. Let me tell you, when you have the power to stop the pain, that's a power that I don't understand. If I can stop the pain, I do. <laughs> well, then it goes on to say in verse six of Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Amen to that. And then it goes on to say, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And ending there at the end of verse eight, it says, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. In Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, yet it pleased the Lord God the Father to bruise him. He put him and put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Verse 11 now. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Isn't that what the Bible says? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. By the knowledge, that knowledge, that Jesus is the way of salvation, many can be made righteous and justified because he shall bear their iniquities. Going back in Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 8, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus, what do we see? A great earthly success story? Absolutely not the opposite. We see a guy who came into the world meek, serving, giving, he stayed poor, he stayed afflicted, he stayed smitten until the day he was crucified in humiliation, naked like a common criminal next to two criminals. But yet if we can see his life through the eyes of God, we see the father and why he said, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. But in contrast, we see Lucifer, the success story, the guy who's controlling the media, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. He's dominating. He's dominating Hollywood. He's dominating the news media. He's dominating the newspapers. He's dominating in politics worldwide. He's dominating. There's more slaves today than there's ever been in history. He's out to steal, kill, and destroy, and business is good. Satan is a success story. Things are being run exactly the way he wants them to go. Very few areas are not his success story. Boy, when you go through the Old Testament, time's going to escape us to be able to share all of them with you. But we see Jacob, boy, talking about a self-willed individual, <laughs> pushing himself forward, lying to his dad, uh, saying, uh, pretending, putting hair all over his body, pretending he's brother Esau, and he steals his brother Esau's blessing. And then he goes and he finds a Jacob bigger than himself, a father-in-law, Laban, <laughs> who outs Jacob, Jacob. Well, eventually, God's will and J Jacob's self-will collided, didn't they? Ended up in a wrestling match. They went all night long. And finally, Jacob lost. And in those days, the loser got the prize. And Jacob said, I, 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 I admit I lost. Give me the prize. You'll no longer be Jacob, the sneaky, thieving hill catcher. But now you'll be Israel, which means what? One who is governed by God. In essence, he was prophesying what the whole nation of Israel would be one day in the millennial reign. A nation finally inhabiting all the promised land. A nation finally governed by God. Never have really done it in their entire history. But yet Jacob himself, no, he, he sort of was a rascal till the day he died. Do you remember at one point, the whole tribe of Israel had to leave the promised land and move down to Egypt. And now there's ancient old Jacob and he stands before Pharaoh. <laughs> and he said, oh, who's this old guy? Well, this is our patriarch, Jacob. Tell me about yourself, Jacob. And Jacob there in Genesis 47, 9, he says, 130 years old am I, and few and evil. The word there, evil, is the word raw. It's very general in the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament. It just, it can mean bad, hard, troubled, evil. It can mean a lot of things. But basically he says, few and troublesome, few and hard, few and difficult have been my days. Few, 130 years is not a few. But he's saying, nah, it's gone by so quick, it's been vapor. And how would I describe my life? Raw, evil, hard, troublesome, difficult. Proverbs 13, 15 says, the way of the transgressor is hard. And I'll just say it this way. The way of the unsubmitted person is hard. Interesting thing seen here in the OC. Saw it a little bit in San Diego. But here, people are not committed to one another even in a church. They bounce around because there's so many cowards. I could throw a rock in it. Five Calvary chapels right now. Hit 10 really good churches. And so people have such a consumer mentality here. Well, if I don't like the music, I'll just go find one, you know, and there, you know, what's that? Uh, Goldilocks, you know. Oh, this, this church is too cold. Oh, this church is too hot. Oh, I got, oh. I like the worship over there, so I run over there at 11 and go to the worship service, and then I jump in my car, run over here, and I hear this guy teach, and then I like the food over there, then I go over to the other church, and I get the food. So where do you go to church? Oh, it takes me three different churches on Sunday morning. 
One for the music, one for the sermon, one for the food. It's it's not a healthy way, is it, to be as a Christian? Because in a family, you go through all the seasons of life and they're difficult. In marriage, you fight it out year after year, decade, and you go through so many things that iron sharpens iron. Grinding causes you to mature and grow. Well, Jacob was a guy you don't want to be. <laughs> Boy, on the opposite side of that, we know, see Moses. Remember at 40 years old, here was a leader who had been made, fished out of the Nile as a baby, grew up as the prince of Egypt, a man who had been trained in military, trained in the best schools of Egypt. Stephen, in his sermon, described Moses at 40 years old this way. A Moses was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt and was mighty in word and deed. And Moses at 40 went out to deliver Israel and had to flee for his life. Spent the next 40 years being a shepherd in Saudi Arabia, Midian, not of his own sheep, of another man's sheep. 40 years being grinded. And when God spoke to him in the burning bush, what does he say there in Exodus 4.10? I'm not an eloquent man. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. I am not a leader. I am not a guy that can help you, Lord. I'm not a guy that can even ask somebody directions to the, the, the grocery store. I, 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 you, you picked the wrong guy. And in Numbers 12, 3, it tells us that Moses was the meekest man on earth. Wherever you go in the world, people know about the Pharaoh getting smashed by God and the children of Israel going through the Red Sea and making it to the promised land. Everybody in the world knows that story. But who was the victor of that story? The meekest man on earth. Who is the villain in that story? A guy who is almost equal to Satan himself in being self-willed and saying no repeatedly to God. No matter what the plague, no matter what the sign or the wonder, he hardened his heart and would not submit. And boy, did he get his. Proverbs 29, 23 says, a man's pride will bring him low. How true. Matthew 23, 12 says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Boy, Pharaoh got that one. Mary and her Magnificat, when she is worship, she's praising God, she says, he has put down the mighty from their thrones. In James 4, 6, it says, God resists the proud. Then on the other hand, I, I think of David, a man after God's own heart, as a little tiny boy killing the, the bear and the lion. And then God raising him up to kill the giant. He wasn't the story of a great mighty Samson. He was just a little boy who got empowered. But yet, as time goes by, Saul, paranoid, believed David was trying to overthrow him. Couldn't be further from the truth. David was so submitted to Saul, his father-in-law. But David had to flee for his life and a bunch of rowdy guys in debt and, and a bunch of guys running from the law all gathered to David. They all became mighty men. But there in En Gedi, I, I, I can't wait till we go to Israel here, maybe another year and a half or so. But when you go to En Gedi, as you're heading back to the waterfall, there are just hundreds and hundreds of caves. And in this little ravine, David and his men were hiding in one of those little caves. And Saul, when he had to go poo-poo, he was going to go in a cave. Be careful when you walk in those caves. Watch your step. He chose the same cave David was hiding in. What are the odds? Clearly the providence of God. And David's guys are going, this is God. 
I mean, just think about it. He's there, perfect head chopping height. You know, he's got his robe kicked back and he's going poo-poo and he's perfect, perfect, uh, perfect height to chop his head off. Put his head on a spear, walk out of the cave. Everybody loves you. All of the whole nation loves you. All of the armies of Israel love you. They're going to go, thank goodness we got a David as king. And David's like, be quiet. No, no. He just cuts a little tiny edge of Saul's robe. And immediately, David is so grieved. Saul leaves. They get a distance away. And David comes out and he said, my father, my father, forgive me. Forgive me for touching the Lord's anointed. Forgive me for cutting your robe. I had no place to do that. No man can touch the Lord's anointed and be found guiltless. Well, time went by. Saul on another rampage to kill David. David again up in the hills, hiding. He saw all the men and David, God put in his heart, let's just go down in the middle of the camp in the middle of the night. Abishai, a rascal, one of David's mighty men said, I'll go with you. And as they walked down into the camp, they began to realize God has put everybody into a supernatural sleep. And Abishai standing over Saul says, let me grab Saul's spear and thrust him through. He'll never wake up. He'll never feel a thing. It'll be over. Can't you see that God is delivering your enemy today? And David there in 1 Samuel 26 In verse 9, David says to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be found guiltless? In verse 10, David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out of the battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David was a man who fully trusted in the Lord. And he was tested to an nth degree. Okay, I don't want you guys to be alarmed, but the government knows some of you are not vaccinated. (laughs) And uh, you're getting ready to be surrounded. Don't, don't fight, just take the vaccination. Um, Oh, maybe a prophecy, huh? Anyway, (laughs) contrary to David, you have Saul, such a self-willed individual. Do you guys remember when Samuel didn't show up, he went ahead and offered a sacrifice that only priests were to do. And then later, we see Saul when he's ordered by Samuel, what's going on? We're not in Florida. This is not a Hurricane Henry. Oh, that's me. So obviously I'm dead before you guys. I, I get the alert like 30 seconds after you guys. Okay, what was the alert? Anybody know? An amber alert? Okay. Okay, Satan does not like us talking about submission. He takes it personally. Okay, <laughs> we do have fun. We'd have fun here. But Samuel told Saul to go down and take out the, the people of Amalek because they're the ones who had attacked Egypt or attacked them when they left Egypt and they were in a bad situation and they took an advantage of them and God had swore that one day he would destroy Amalek and he said Samuel don't take any or Samuel said God it says don't take anything not any animals kill everybody everything bring nothing back but Saul brought back the best and when he was confronted by Samuel, Saul said, well, the people did it because they wanted to sacrifice to God. You're, you're out of it, Samuel. 
And there in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as the sacrifices, as obeying in the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, the heed than that of the fat of rams. Important, verse 23. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness, that self-will, that lack of submitted heart is as the iniquity of idolatry. Rebellion is equal to witchcraft. Isn't this getting a little out of hand? I mean, okay, Brian, wants to submit, we got it. But now to say, I, I'm worshiping Satan if I don't have a submitted heart. <laughs> like I said, Satan takes this personally. I'm like Satan if I don't submit. Stubbornness is equal to like worshiping the God of Baal or Dagon. Are you crazy? Well, you know what? In a couple of chapters after this, Saul, this unrepentant guy, a guy full of stubbornness and rebellion, you know the last thing he does? He seeks out a witch to know the future. This wasn't hyperbole. This was God saying, you can't see it. But I can. When I see that stubborn heart, I hear Lucifer trying to sway one third of the angels to follow him, to raise him up to be God. When I see people stubborn and, and unwilling to have that beautiful heart of Jesus, of submission, I see Satan having a foothold, leading you into pagan ways of worship, Satan himself. And this is exactly what happened. Oh, time has failed to talk about Joshua and Caleb, or Korah and Dathan and Abram, who rebelled against Moses and Aaron, or Balaam, <laughs> who was so stubborn and self-willed, his Dumb donkey could see it, but he couldn't. Or Daniel. Oh, a man lifted up so high in two of the world-ruling empires. Or Mary and Joseph. Horrible government. Nine months pregnant, making her travel to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was from. He's never lived there. But in order for the taxes to be fixed right and for the census to be taken, she had to get on a donkey and travel 90 difficult miles to end up in Bethlehem. What when Gabriel said, you're gonna give birth to the son of God? Mary said, how can this be? I'm a, I'm a virgin. And he said, well, the Holy Spirit's gonna overshadow you. The power of the mighty is gonna come upon you. Any questions? She's like, be it unto me according to the will of God. Wow. I don't understand what you're saying, Gabriel. This whole thing's sort of overwhelming to me. But what do we see in Mary, the mother of our Lord, according to the flesh? Be it unto me according to your word. Be it unto me according to God's perfect will. My body, whatever it means, is his. Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem, the appointed place to give birth prophetically hundreds of years earlier by this beautiful heart of submission. Peter was a rascal, very self-willed, but listen to what he says to the church. First Peter 5.5, 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Listen to this. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to what? The humble. Those with that humble, submitted heart. Blessed are the meek. First Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. Well, he's gonna take this verse and apply it to wives and husbands, children and their parents, Employers to employees, slaves to slave owners. 
And we see that there's just a beautiful spirit that God will do great and mighty things. The world necessarily won't see it. The world necessarily won't get it. Often being a person of this submitted heart means we lose out on earth victories or at least the riches and the power and the force of this world. But yet in the eyes of God, how precious it is, this beautiful, gentle, and quiet spirit, this submitted heart that says, God, I'm yours. You work it out. I'm here as you will. Submitting yourself to one another. Why? Because you honor and respect Jesus who brought us eternal life and salvation by submitting to the will of the Father. And he came and he did not do it angrily, even though it was difficult, Father, if there's any way for this cup, not my will, thy will be done. But when he understood that he had to submit himself into the point of death, even the death of the cross, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And now set down at the right hand of the Father. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. None will be greater because none was more submitted. Amen. Lord, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done right now in our hearts and our minds and our lives. Lord, we know there's a great work of grace you want to do in us today. There's a beautiful, gentle, and quiet spirit that you want to do mighty, mighty works, mighty, mighty things through. And Lord, we observe the world. It's those who push themselves forward. It's those who step on others. It's those who aggressively plow through the fields, accomplishing what they want, when they want, how they want for their money, for their fame, for their prestige. Bite, kicking, stealing, whatever it takes to get to the top. It works. And those who remain humble and submitted in spirit suffer the consequences of not getting ahead in this world, but yet getting ahead in the world to come. Help us, Lord, to see your nature and to be set free. You said we'd know the truth and the truth would set us free. Set us free right now that we would have this beautiful spirit of submitting one to another in honor and respect to you, the Father, and the Son. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.